I'm thankful today for this church. I'm thankful for the opportunity that that I have had for the last almost 16 years to be the pastor. Um, came out here. We didn't know anybody. The church has always been wonderful to us, to my family, to my children. Uh, and today is another example of the church being wonderful to us. We thank you for the banner for thinking of us or me in, in doing that. We love our church family. We are in grave danger. We are in grave danger because we are living in a world that is in rebellion against God. This puts us in grave danger because God sees and God cares about this rebellion. We are also in grave danger because we too have rebelled against God. God is omniscient, and so He knows. Not just what the world out there does, but what we do. He knows not just what makes the news cycle, but He knows the things that happen in the dark recesses of our homes. He knows every time we have violated His law. He knows every time that we have known what He wanted us to do and yet we chose to do something else. He knows every time we have pursued people and things more than we have pursued Him. He knows every time we have taken His name in vain. He knows every time we have hated someone in our hearts. He knows every time we have lied about someone or passed off sketchy gossip about someone. He knows when we have dishonored our parents, when we have lusted with our eyes, and when we have coveted something that someone else had and felt bitter envy in our hearts because we thought we deserved it. He knows every time we have broken His law. We are in grave danger because these things are far more serious than we have been led to believe. The world tells us that these things really aren't that big of a deal. But God is a holy God. And that means these things are far more serious than we realize. That God is holy means He cannot just overlook our sin and our rebellion. He can't just excuse those times that we have violated His law. God is just, and His justice means that every transgression and every sin must be punished. The holiness, the justice, and even the goodness of God ensure that God will judge sin, and it will be a just judgment. No one gets a pass. Not me, and not you. One day we will stand face to face with God and give an account for our lives. What will we say on that day? What will we do on that day? More importantly, what will God say? What will God do? Scripture teaches that there will be some who stand before Jesus on this day and they will hear these words, Depart from me. I never knew you. What a terrible thing to hear. 
Now what makes that passage even worse is that it's clear from the context that those people are surprised. In fact, they respond and they say, Lord, Lord, we've done all of these things in your name. And yet he still says, depart from me. I never knew you. They fully expected that heaven would be their home. They may well have known lots of facts about God. They may well have been active in their churches. In fact, the context is that they did things for Jesus, that they had served and done things in His name. They were likely good, moral people. They were religious. And yet they were still told, depart from me. I never knew you. What can we do to prepare ourselves for that day that is coming? How can we be sure that that fate does not await us? How can we overcome the fact that we have rebelled against Almighty God and we are guilty in the courts of heaven? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 3, verse 11. It's where we're going to start. It's page 832 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them on the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are all witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, yes, The faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, has thus been fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." That he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The title of the message this morning is Experiencing the Forgiveness of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and you are worthy of our devotion. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for your word. We are thankful, Father, that it tells us that, Lord, our sins can be blotted out. That, Lord, it tells us what we must do so that our sins could be blotted out. We're thankful that it tells us about a Savior who died so that our sins could be blotted out. Father, today as we look at this passage, 
Father, do let us feel the weight of it. Our world has conditioned us not to be concerned about our sins or the sins of our loved ones. And yet that certainly is not what we see in Scripture. Father, today let your Holy Spirit come and take your word and, and make it weighty. Father, make it so that, that we would tremble at your word. That we would tremble at the thought that one day we will stand before the great white throne of judgment. And God, on that day, what was culturally acceptable won't matter. On that day, what our friends told us was okay won't matter. On that day, all the people who assured us we were good won't matter. All that will matter is our connection to you through Jesus Christ. God, press upon us today. Open our hearts to receive and open our eyes to see what you have for us in this word. Lord, you know our hearts and our spiritual condition. So if there's any here today that, Lord, they're, they are separated from you. They have never turned to Jesus. And Lord, today begin to make aware Make them aware of the fact that they are lost and condemned apart from Jesus Christ. Make them understand that they desperately need the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus. Father, if there are any here today that are deceived like the ones in the Sermon on the Mount, make it clear to them today, Lord, don't. Don't let them pass on through this service and through this life and, and stand before you and say, Lord, Lord, only to hear, depart from me. I never knew you. Father, if there are any of us here today that are, have slidden back in our relationship with you, we have gone the way of a prodigal father, let us know that we must turn back. Let us know that there is a, a God who will receive us, who longs for us to come back. And God, let us all see Jesus calling us to come to Him, to lay our burdens down, to take His yoke upon us and learn from Him so that we can find rest for our weary souls. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought to say what You once said, Lord, nothing more, nothing less. Let Jesus be glorified today. Amen. But you may be seated. Now, the verses just prior to our text, a miraculous healing has taken place. Peter and John have gone up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And as they went, they found a man who had been crippled since he was born, laying at a gate called Beautiful, begging alms. Peter and John walk by. Peter fixes his eyes on him. The Bible says, and Peter says, look at us. And the guy, expecting that they're going to give him some money, they, he looks at him and Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. But such as I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. The guy's instantly healed. He stands up. He begins to leap and to jump and to, to praise God as he enters the temple with Peter and John. Well, the man was someone that they all knew. 
This was not the first time he had sat at the temple gate and begged alms. He was a very familiar character there. So as he's walking and leaping and praising God, going into the temple, everyone sees it and everyone recognizes it. And it causes a stir. And the stir begins to cause people to crowd around Peter and John and this guy to find out what has happened. Now, Peter, ever the preacher, uses the opportunity to begin to to tell the people about Jesus. And he launches into a gospel message to these people with the goal of converting them to Christianity through faith in Jesus. Now, we know that he wants them to believe on Jesus because Jesus is the focus of the message. But he starts in verse 12. He says, men and brethren, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? He he makes sure right away they understand this wasn't him. John didn't heal the guy. He didn't heal the guy. The man was not healed because Peter and John were godly or powerful or awesome. Rather, the guy was healed in verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Right. The man was healed by God. For Jesus' glory. Right? God, their God, healed them through the name and through the power and for the glory of His servant, Jesus. There's a few facts about this passage that are important to understand as we go in. The first is that by referring to Jesus as God's servant, He's referring to to the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And it's the prophecy of the Messiah that was to come. The Messiah that was called God's servant. And He would come and He would suffer and He would die on behalf of others. Referring to Jesus as God's servant and pointing back to Isaiah makes sense in light of the fact that He is about to launch into the death of Jesus Christ and explain that to them a bit. Secondly, it is important that we understand that this was a a miraculous healing. God miraculously healed this guy. He wasn't a shill in the crowd that was meant to gather a crowd. It wasn't a coincidence. He didn't just suddenly get better in the very moment that, that Peter told him to rise up and walk. No, this was a legitimate miracle performed by Almighty God. And then third is that God did it in order to glorify Jesus. The point with that, God did it to glorify his servant. So that this man and everyone who saw it would recognize their need for Jesus. What God did in healing this man was so that they would say, God is awesome. Jesus is his servant. We need Jesus. Now, this is very similar to what it tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where it said God confirmed the message of the gospel about Jesus through signs, wonders, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He was doing what he did to confirm that Jesus really was his servant, that Jesus really was the Messiah. What God does through the name of Jesus, as we see in verse 16, is always meant to lead people to Jesus. Always. 
that Jesus is central to everything God wants to do in us and through us and for us. Right? Jesus is central to everything God will do in us and through us and for us. Right? So the key truth for the message is that everything that comes from God comes through Jesus. Everything that comes from God comes through Jesus. Everything. Now, some would say, well, I mean, to say everything, that's pretty all-inclusive. That, that's probably a, an exaggeration. You're, you're overstating your case just a bit, right? I mean, not everything that comes from God comes through Jesus. No, I'm not overstating it. No, it's not an exaggeration. Everything that comes from God comes through Jesus. Let me show you some of what the Bible says about this. One, there's healing. Right? Look at verse 16. That's what this whole passage is about. And in His name, Jesus, through faith in His name, Jesus, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him, Jesus, has given Him, the crippled man, perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Right? He was healed through the name of Jesus, through faith that comes through Jesus, through faith that is in Jesus. Right? Jesus was central to that. Now, when we talk about healing, one thing I, I've been noticing in my studies recently, in, in, in years to come when I get more studying done on it, we'll talk more about it. But just a quick note this morning, that one of the words in the Greek that's used for healing in the New Testament, it carries with the idea, it's a really a full term, it carries with the idea of, of deliverance, of healing, and of wholeness. Right? So, it's not just a, a physical healing but also other kinds of healing, right? For instance, Scripture speaks of Jesus healing the broken heart. Right? Scripture speaks of our souls prospering and our spirits being sanctified. Right? So what Jesus does in healing is not just a physical thing. It is a, a whole thing. Right? It is complete body, soul, and spirit. So there is not only physical healing but spiritual and emotional healing. And all of this comes through Jesus. God heals through Jesus. Right? There is salvation. Nor is there salvation in any other name other than Jesus. For there is no other name than Jesus given under, given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in Jesus. God saves, but He saves through Jesus and through Jesus alone. Salvation comes from God through Jesus. God saves through Jesus. There's, there's freedom. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, shall be free indeed. We'll talk more about this a little bit next week. But when you do a Bible study on all the ways that, that those who believe in Jesus can be freed. You see that we're freed from the punishment of sin. We're freed from current slavery to sin. We're freed from the influence of evil spiritual powers. We're freed from legalism. We're freed from anxiety. We're freed from depression. We're freed from all kinds of baggage that may come into our lives. God gives freedom. But He gives freedom only through Jesus. 
There's life. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. Spiritual life, eternal life, abundant life, they all come from God. But they only come through Jesus. God gives life, spiritual life, eternal life, and abundant life through Jesus. There is forgiveness. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So there is forgiveness for our sins. But notice, it comes through Jesus. right? That he can forg- Because of Jesus, we can be forgiven of stuff that we can't be forgiven of in any other way. Now, the law of Moses, basically the idea is we can't do enough good stuff to cause ourselves to be forgiven. We can't undo all the wrong that we've done by doing right. So where we cannot make ourselves forgiven and we cannot earn our forgiveness, in Christ there is forgiveness. God forgives sin. But He only does it through Jesus. We could go on and on all day. And we would find the same truth over and over and over again. Everything that comes from God comes through Jesus. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only one that leads us to the Father. Now, while Peter's sermon, it is very Christ-exalting. It is also very pointed for his hearers. Look again at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, And killed the prince of life, whom God raised up from the dead, which we are witnesses. Where God glorified Jesus, the people delivered Jesus. They delivered him to Pilate to be crucified. Now, now Peter is making sure they understand that this is their fault. They did this, right? You delivered him up. You denied him. But you denied the Holy One. And you asked for a murder. And you killed the Prince of Peace. Now, you know the story. Pilate always had a tradition to let one person go in the time of the Passover to earn favor with the Jews. And Pilate had understood that Jesus was innocent. And he didn't want to crucify him. Because his wife had said, have nothing to do with this just man. I have had nightmares all day about him. So he wanted to let him go. So he brings Jesus up. And then he brings Barabbas, a murderer and a thief up. And he says, who do you want me to let go? I'll let one of them go. Now his mind is obviously. See, Barabbas, as a murderer and a thief, under Roman occupation, someone like Barabbas could cause the government officials to press in harder on the people. 
the more crime there was, the more Roman soldiers there were, the, the, the harder they pressed in on them. So who do you want me to let go? This guy that makes your life harder or Jesus, who's just done good things, right? And at the urging of the religious leaders, the people, all of the people, they cried out to release Barabbas and keep Jesus. And he said, well, then what will I do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, you want me to crucify your king? And the people, and what is possibly the worst thing they said throughout it, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Who was meant to be the king of the Jewish nation? God was. That was not just a denial of Jesus, but that was a denial of their God. And they had done all of that. They had, he puts the blame for Jesus' death squarely on them. They had killed Jesus. But he not only puts the blame squarely on their shoulders, he continually reminds them about who Jesus was, right? He starts the reminding by his titles for God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's the God of their nation. Or those are the people of the, the founders of their nation. The God of the, the, their people. The God of our fathers. He had a servant that was the Messiah. And he came. But he wasn't just the servant of God. He was also the Holy One of God. He was the just one of God. And he was the Prince of Life. Now, all of those are Messianic titles. All of those are ways of saying, you killed our Messiah. Right? Again, that was a very strong point he's making. He's reminding the Jewish audience that, that they had waited for thousands of years for God to fulfill the promises that began in Genesis 3 about the Messiah. Their whole history as a people was built upon waiting for the Messiah, the just one, the prince of life, the servant of God to come. And when that person, who was the point of their whole existence and history came, they rejected him, they denied him, and they delivered him up to pagans to be murdered. He was their king. But they demanded that he be executed. They were responsible for his death. Now, it's easy enough for us to say, well, what terrible people they were. But let's be honest. The reality is we are all in some ways responsible for Jesus' death. Now, we weren't there to haul or crucify him. And we didn't say we have no God, no king but Caesar. But we have sinned. We have rebelled against God. And it was sin that took Jesus to the cross. Scripture is clear that all have sinned, fallen short of God's righteous standard. And that the wages of these sins is death. You and I, we earned death. To our rebellion against God. 
And we need forgiveness for denying Jesus and rejecting Jesus and betraying Jesus and being responsible for his death just as much as Peter's original hearers did. For if we were honest, there have been times in our life where we have denied Jesus with our words and our attitudes and our actions. There have been words where times where we did the same sort of things that they did. We need the weight of this to fall on our shoulders just as heavily as they needed to fall on theirs. Now, thankfully, our sins can be forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross. While our sins earned the wage of death, Jesus took that death so that we could have His life. His death on the cross was not a surprise. It was the reason that He came. He came as a willing sacrifice to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. He makes it possible that we can be forgiven of everything that we cannot cause ourselves to be forgiven for. We can be certain of this because Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 15, And killed the Prince of Peace whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Peter and John, they saw the risen Christ and they knew for certain he was alive. The resurrection of Jesus, it is the greatest proof that he died for our sins and not as a martyr for the cause. In fact, Jesus' death would have no significance if it was not for his resurrection. The Romans crucified probably millions of people in the time that they ruled over the world. They crucified probably thousands of Jews. In fact, we know from the story of the gospel that there were at least two other Jews that they crucified on the very day that Jesus died. What makes his death better than theirs? What makes his death more significant than theirs? He rose from the dead. He did not stay dead. His resurrection declares in a powerful way That he is indeed the son of God who has the power and the authority to forgive sins for all who would believe on him. Now, what makes this more amazing than anything, I guess, is that this was always God's plan. It's easy to look at that and think, well, God worked something good out of something bad. That's not the case. Look at verse 18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ would what? Suffer. Has thus been fulfilled. Jesus came to die. He didn't just come to be a good example. He didn't just come to teach great things. He didn't just come to do wondrous miracles. He was born to die on our behalf. That was the purpose of his coming. And it was promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled it in the New. The message that Peter is preaching about Jesus being central to everything God is going to do. And that everything that comes from God coming through Jesus, it's not something new. 
The message of the Messiah dying and rising from the dead is not a new teaching. Peter isn't teaching some new thing. He is simply saying all that God promised has now been fulfilled. This is always what God was going to do. From the very moment that humanity fell into sin, God said there would be the seed of a woman that would come. And he would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. And Jesus fulfilled this promise. Because everything God was ever going to do in us and through us and for us was always going to come through Jesus. That's the way it was always intended to be, and that is the way it will always be. There will never be a time where anything comes from God that does not come through Jesus. Everything that comes from God will always, always come through Jesus. Now, these truths, Peter recognized they demand a response. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you. If we understand that everything that comes from God comes through Jesus, there is a response that is demanded. Not urged, not you should consider, but it is demanded. Right? There's three. The first is that we must repent. Right? Repent is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. It's a change of mind about God first. Because perhaps you came today convinced that as long as you believe that there is a God out there somewhere, that that was good enough. But you have to change your mind and focus on Jesus. Perhaps you came today thinking that that what God did in you and through you and for you, He would do because you were basically a good person. You were moral or religious. But you've got to change your mind and focus on Jesus. Now, it's also a change of mind about sin. Because it's entirely possible that you came here today thinking sin was no big deal. That your sin was okay, that, that you live in a different world, that, that things are different, or you're, because the social world has changed, or cultural acceptability has changed, it's not that big of a deal. But you have to change your mind and realize that Jesus went to the cross because your sin, my sin, is an enormous deal. We should all tremble. Under the weight of the Word of God and the severity of our sin and the sins of our loved ones. But not only must we repent, we must also believe. Now, believe is not specifically mentioned in the text, but it's certainly implied. Right? Because up to this point, they don't believe in Jesus. They do not believe that He is the servant of God, the Holy One, the just, the Prince of life. But what is he calling on them to do? To change their mind about that and understand who Jesus is. So repentance and belief are both here. In fact, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate repentance and faith without destroying both. 
But when we talk about belief, understand it's not a general belief. It's not enough to believe that there is a God out there somewhere. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is real. And let me say clearly, it's not even enough to say to to believe that Jesus died and rose again. And before you think I've gone the way of the heretic, let me ask you something. What does James say about the devils and what they believe? The devils believe, and yet they do have enough sense to tremble under the weight of what they believe. But are, are the devils, are they going to heaven? Are they saved? No. John Piper says something that blew my mind. He said that, that no matter how much we study the Bible or how many theology books we read, we will never be as theologically astute as Satan is. He knows all those things are true. You could have him here and say, do you believe that Jesus was born a virgin? He would say yes. You could say, do you believe that he died on the cross for the sins of humanity? He would say yes. You could say, do you believe that he rose again? He would say yes. You could say, would you be baptized? He would probably say yes. Believe that is the only hope we have. We must believe that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only reason I will ever call heaven my home. It is the only reason I am adopted as a child of God. I must believe that there is no life outside of Jesus. I must believe there is no salvation outside of Jesus. I must believe there is no righteousness or forgiveness outside of Jesus. I must let go of my self-righteousness. I must let go of my self-sufficiency. For I cannot cling to the cross in self-righteousness. And I cannot cling to the cross in self-sufficiency. We must let go of one to believe in the other. Believing in Jesus means letting go of our self-righteousness. And our self-sufficiency. And clinging to the cross of Jesus is the only righteousness and salvation that we have. If I were to ask you, why should God let you into heaven? If your answer is anything but Jesus, you do not believe properly. It is Jesus alone. So we must repent, we must believe, and then we must receive. Notice that as we repent and believe, Christ comes to us. This requires us to receive Him. This is an intentional decision that we must make for ourselves. It is accepting that Jesus is both Savior and Lord and receiving Him as both. Both. I cannot receive a Savior who forgives my sins, but not a Lord who wants to orient my life. To receive Jesus, He must be Savior and Lord. 
Scripture promises those who receive Jesus become children of God who are born of God. We must repent if we want to receive all that comes from God. We must believe if we want to receive all that comes from God. And then we must receive if we want to receive all that comes from God. Then there are two results that we experience as we repent, believe, and receive. First is that my guilt is taken away. He says in verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now usually, when we talk about sins being blotted out, we, we focus only in terms of this being done in heaven. Our sins are blotted out in the courts of heaven. The guilt for my sin is taken away and there is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. And that is absolutely true. Those who repent, believe, and receive do have their sins blotted out in the courts of heaven. Those who repent, believe, and receive, right now there is no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. That is good stuff. That is hallelujah ground. Good stuff right there. But there is more that comes with our sins being blotted out. Check this out. In the book of Hebrews, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of these things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder every year, for it is not possible the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Now, one of the weaknesses of the Old Testament sacrificial system was that sacrifices never really took out, took away sin. Or as Peter said, it never really blotted them out, as it says in, as Peter said. This was evident in the, in the, in the fact that the people remained constantly conscious of their sins. Guilt sort of permeated their lives. This guilt was highlighted every time they had to make an offering. Now, you know, if you've read the Old Testament sacrificial system, they had to make an offering for everything. There was the ritual sacrifice that was made every year for the overall offering of their sin. Then there were trespass offerings and there were accidental trespass offerings. And there was, I mean, it was just something all the time. And every time they did it, what they were reminded of was, I have sinned. I have fallen short. That they, they sort of lived under a general sense of guilt for their sins. They always had a consciousness of their sin. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. But Jesus came to bring something better. Now, not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, or goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling in the unclean sanctifies for the peering of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself up without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works, or some translations say works that lead to death, to serve the living God? See, Jesus didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats to pay the penalty of our sins. Instead, he offered up his own blood. The result was that he attained eternal redemption. Part of what this means is that sacrifices have ceased to be offered. That's why we don't bring sacrifices to come and offer for the things that we have done wrong. There has been one sacrifice made for sin for all time. And we rest forever fully 
in that sacrifice. But another part of that is that our conscience has been cleansed. We do not have to live under the weight of guilt. We do not have to live with a constant sense of I have failed. There is redemption that takes all of that away. When it says that it blots away our sins, it's not only something that happens in the heavens. It is something that happens in our hearts. The burden of guilt is taken away from us. We can have that removed regardless of what we've done. Many people live under the heavy weight of guilt. And this may be some that are in here today. You may never have told anyone the things that you have done or how heavily it weighs on your conscience. But you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, it bears you down. It is a terrible, heavy burden. It holds you back. It keeps you from moving forward. The good news is you do not have to live under the weight of that guilt any longer. When Jesus Christ cleanses us, when God blots out our sin, He cleanses our conscience from the works that led to death and frees us to serve the living God. My friend, if you are carrying around the burden of guilt this morning, you do not have to do that. There is freedom from that weighty and terrible burden. God does this for all who repent and believe and receive. He does it through Jesus. My guilt is taken away and I am refreshed by the Lord. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter says those who repent and believe and receive will experience times of refreshing that come from the Lord. Times of refreshing are spiritual blessings that are physically experienced after our sins have been blotted out. It starts with the blotting out itself, the the removal of our guilt and our shame. And when that terrible load of guilt is taken from us, we feel refreshed and reborn. It not only happens at the, at the moment of conversion, but it also happens throughout our lives as we sin and we confess it to the Lord. If you're a child of God, your sin will always weigh on you. There will always be the threat of guilt holding you down. But there is a promise that when we confess it, That He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to send times of refreshing that come from the Lord. When I was in the army, we, we carried heavy rucksacks often. We infantry soldiers, we walked virtually everywhere that we went. And in the summer, when you carry a 50-pound pack in Tennessee, Kentucky, heat and humidity, it's pretty miserable. And when you get through and where you're going and you drop that rucksack off, your back is just soaking, dripping wet with sweat. 
And the air, it doesn't matter how hot the air is. It can be 110 degrees outside. But when that air hits your back, it is like a refreshing chill. You go, whew, and your forehead dries up a little bit because of how cold that air feels as it hits your back. That, and it's just like, oh man, I feel so much better now that that air has hit me. That's sort of a picture of what Peter is talking about here. When we lay that heavy burden down, there is a, a refreshment that comes from the Lord lifts us up, gives us strength, gives us encouragement, and helps us to understand all that He has done for us in our lives. But at the time of refreshing, it's not just in regard to forgiveness of sins either. I, I think it would be any time when God strengthens us. Have you ever been just spiritually drained? Maybe you prayed or read your Bible or even just listened to worship music or something like that. And when you were through, you felt... Energized. It's a time of refreshing that comes from the Lord. Have you ever been discouraged? You prayed or you read your Bible or you came to church or you listened to a worship song and, and when it was over you felt encouraged. It's a time of refreshing that comes from the Lord. Have you ever been broken hearted? Sad? And just cried and poured that out to God or listened to a worship song and, and God comforted you. That's a time of refreshing that comes from the Lord. Have you ever been stale in your spiritual life? Same old, same old. It feels like over and over. You pray or you read your Bible, you come to church, you listen to a worship song. Oh man, it's like there's new life in you again. That's time of refreshing. That comes from the Lord. These all come upon those who repent, believe, and receive. These times could be times when we become overwhelmed at God's love for us. It could be a time when we're suddenly filled with the joy of the Lord. It could be time when we're terrified. And God strengthens our hearts. It could be times when we feel far from the Lord and God just comes and says, I'm here. I've always been here and I'm not going anywhere. These are all times of refreshing that come from the Lord. And, and there are so many times and so many ways that these times of refreshing can come into our lives. But they only come. To those who repent. And they only come to those who believe. And they only come to those who receive Jesus. Because everything that comes from God. Comes through Jesus. Always and forever. Amen. Let's stand.